Thanks for downloading Show 89 of the C-Suite podcast. My name's Rachel Gatley, and this is the first of two episodes we're recording in partnership with CFA UK at their conference on the topic of ESG investing. ESG is currently facing growing demand, yet in many ways the sector is still in the early stages of establishing best practice. So today's CFA conference covers many of the practical realities of how to effectively measure, score and improve the implementation of environmental, social and governance factors across all asset classes. And throughout this podcast, we will be chatting to some of today's speakers to provide an overview of the topics and issues discussed. Our first guest today is Ben Yeo, Portfolio Manager of Global Equities at Royal Bank of Canada Global Asset Management. Ben is about to take to the stage here at the conference to set the scene for the day and will be speaking about integrating ESG into analysis and valuation. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. So, why are today's investors looking at ESG? Well, there are several reasons. We are getting stronger demand from the client base, so the women in the street, institutional asset owners and pension funds. We're also getting pressure from regulators globally as to being more interested in this whole area. But ultimately, investors are really interested in this because there's plenty of us which believe that by using ESG techniques and ideas, we'll be lowering investment risk. And there's a bunch of investors also who think that you can use ESG techniques to also get better return on the opportunity side. So it's to lower risk and also to produce better return. Ultimately, even if you don't believe in that necessarily 100% gospel truth, it is also giving you a set of tools and techniques to make better investment analysis and process, to enhance your process, obviously to have a better outcome, even if you don't think there is a direct link. And finally, it is also a set of tools and techniques which also help you to do engagement and stewardship with your with the investee companies or in due diligence in a in more enhanced manner. And that's across asset classes, whether that might be in private markets, but also within fixed income equities and alternatives. Very interesting. So on that, you, you've referenced this already, but why do you think then the ESG does add value to the investment process? So. ESG in general is a little bit of a nebulous uh, concept, but if you look at various aspects of what makes up ESG, a lot of it you could reclassify as intangible value. And there's a lot of evidence today that intangible value, some of that value not sitting on a company's balance sheets, are the majority of a company's value. So things like corporate culture, innovation, it's human resources, human capital, intellectual capital, manufacturing, social capital, and things like that. And if you think about it, if you if you're very good in those other sources of, of capital, they're a kind of the direct link into better business performance, things like sales and margins, which should lead to better uh, share price appreciation. And while there's some academic evidence on some strands of those elements of ESG, I think a lot, like a lot of the other financial debates, I don't think academia is ever going to pronounce this uh, definitively dead or alive because of the complexity of what we're dealing with. So I think it's fair to say that you're going to be setting up the day for a lot of the discussions to follow today. Um, I wonder if you can share what ESG techniques that you might be highlighting through your own talk. So one of the key techniques that I talk about is the use of a materiality assessment. So this actually goes across a lot of asset classes and is the idea that we're trying to look at the causal material business factors which drive companies, sectors or themes and trying to ignore the things which are less material. 
because we think the material things drives companies and businesses and the less material don't. So for instance, water stress at something like a financial services company like a bank is probably less important. It's, you know, health and safety, maybe it's did you spill hot coffee on yourself? Whereas in a mining uh, industry or maybe in the drinks industry where you might have manufacturing in Africa or somewhere like that is much more operationally uh, material for what you might uh, be looking at. The other thing we talk about is um, ESG data and that actually the fact that ESG ratings agencies that they don't agree uh, is potentially actually a good thing because actually it's a case where there isn't consensus across a lot of these things. It still requires judgment on this materiality to use that and that perhaps thinking that ESG data is going to agree or the ratings agencies don't agree at the end as a silver bullet uh, is perhaps something that we're not going to achieve. Great. Well, just to finish off, um, what are you hoping that attendees here and and indeed listeners to this podcast will take away from the presentations as a whole today? Well, I hope they find that they learn something new, that ESG is overall has actually got many, many uh, techniques and investment processes behind that. That is quite a fast moving area and that hopefully there is at least one thing, if not many things, that they can use to add in, in terms of improving their investment process, which hopefully should lead to long term value creation for all of the stakeholders involved. Thank you, Ben, so much for joining the show, and I hope you have a super day. Thank you very much. I'm now joined by Sudeep Hazra, Head of Sustainability, Research and Responsible Investment at Kepler Chevreau. Sudeep is about to run his session here at the event, so I'm keen to find out more about his thoughts. Sudeep, I'm aware that you believe strongly that ESG is no longer optional, but an essential prerequisite of any organisation. Why is this? So, first of all, Rachel, um, thanks for the invite. It's great to be here at the the CFA Day. Um, In terms of ESG, I think there's uh, lots of different drivers right now. And in terms of where we are, one of the big things that's really pushing asset managers is regulation. I think particularly in the EU, uh, there's a lot of um, political agreement, which in the longer term is bringing asset managers to a place where they have to think much more deeply about ESG and I think for the most part there's a lot of agreement that ESG can add value. It's really understanding how and in what specific ways it does add value. Um, But certainly the way that regulation is going I think that for example on the environmental side we're likely to see a lot more interest both from the investor side and corporates in disclosing much more technical detail, which will allow us all to really look at how um, environmental opportunities can be quantified uh, in the investment world. And I wonder um, whether you could give us some examples of those who are are doing things well. Um, So I think in general, in the consumer space, that's been very interesting because that's one of the um, areas where I think we can see instant feedback So if you're buying something, and particularly if you're paying slightly extra, for example, for a health benefit, then usually you'll be very reactive if you don't like some of the sustainability aspects of the product that you're you're paying more for, essentially. So I think in the consumer space, particularly premium consumer goods, they've been very reactive. And we've seen a lot of movement where clearly there have been some good opportunities and some of the big brands are really beginning to take advantage of that. Um, and we can see revenue generation there. And in, in your opinion, um, is risk avoidance perhaps now the major driver towards adopting an ESG approach to investment? 
I think it has been until now, so risks have been the main element. And if anything, I think ESG risks are growing. But in fact, it's probably more on the opportunities side where we see more new interest, i.e. What we, what we mean by that is we see mainstream investors really stepping in because um, to some extent they understand within ESG that governance has always been a big risk. But they're really seeing more opportunities across ESG, which they can start to really take advantage of. Over the years you've worked in this space, I wonder if you would say the balance has shifted and has meeting ESG standards now become perhaps more of a mainstream expectation for investments? Uh, yes, certainly. And I think that the only way that that can go is, is forward. So right now, I think we're still in a space where ESG um, could be considered more material. But for the most part, um, many investors have uh, quite regularly seen examples of material um, impacts from ESG issues. And in terms of the way that that's being implemented, I would certainly say that ESG is no longer considered optional. And across the board, particularly here in Europe, the vast majority of asset managers are beginning um, to take it on board if they haven't before. And there's a big chunk of, of very large managers who I think have been doing it very well um, for some time now and are increasing their investment in this space. Fantastic. That's, that's great. Thank you, Sadip. And thanks for joining the show. And good luck with your session today. OK, thank you very much. It was great to be here. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Next to join me is Nina Reed, Director, Responsible Property Investment at M&G Real Estate. Nina's just finished running one of the asset class focus sessions, naturally looking at property. So Nina, before we ask you about your session, I wonder if perhaps you could tell me a little bit about your part of M&G and the work that you, you do there. Yeah, so my role is to oversee our responsible property investment strategy or our ESG strategy across our direct real estate holdings. So. M&G Real Estate has around £33 billion worth of assets under management globally and my role is to integrate uh, responsible investment considerations, so environmental efficiency, health and well-being, socio-economic impact into our investment decision making, our asset management decision making and our sort of day-to-day operations of the buildings. That sounds like a big brief. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, I wonder if you could perhaps talk us through a little of, of what you covered in your session today. Yeah, so I was giving an overview of how we've gone about integrating responsible property investment into uh, our investment strategy for our funds under management globally. And then I had a deep dive into two topics. So one was around climate risk. Uh, and the other was around um, health and well-being and occupier experience in our buildings. That's really interesting. We've heard um, from a few people about, obviously, the very high profile of climate and, and the risk that that presents. But I'm interested in what you say about the, the health and well-being piece, which very important, but perhaps not getting as much uh, of the airwaves right now. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about why, why that is particularly important and what 
is happening in that space to improve health and well-being with regards to building? So I think um, it's an interesting kind of trend that's particularly particularly in the real estate sector grown over the past three to four years and I think it's to do with the growing recognition of the impact that buildings can have on the health and well-being of people who live and work in them and we spend around 90% of our lives indoors and so actually the built environment has a huge impact therefore on our well-being and I think that uh, with the rise of kind of devices and the ability for people to understand air quality and actually how that might impact them it's created a kind of growing uh, engagement with the built environment as to how we might improve that experience for people. I think also from a business perspective on our occupiers there's also sort of a growing range of evidence about how that might impact the productivity of the workforce and also uh, might also play a role in whether people want to come and work for your company because of the facilities that you provide within kind of particularly the office environment. I think kind of the, the other side that we're quite focused on is around inclusivity. So obviously, um, particularly within the developed markets where we are, we've got an aging population, people with different needs. And so we need to think about how our buildings are able to accommodate people with a very different sort of range of physical and mental uh, needs. And um, I'm interested to know whether you think that the folk increased focus in that space has been led through legislative changes and policy or, or the public or perhaps a combination of the two. What's your feeling right now of where the push comes from for that increased focus? I think on the health and wellbeing side that's very much kind of occupier driven and then driven through the sort of employees who work for corporates in particular. I think on the environmental side it's probably more legislative although the sort of public awareness that we've seen through the recent um, global climate strikes is obviously also having a kind of bottom-up effect on uh, individuals asking their employers or where they work what are they doing about climate change. Absolutely and um, something else that keeps coming back as a topic is, is um, how easy it is or not for investors to actually get good quality data on a building's performance and environment. Um, now that's something you'll live every day work with. What, what's your thoughts there? I, I do think it still remains a challenge. I do think there are some markets in which data quality has improved quite dramatically. Obviously, as a real estate owner, there are assets where we can get data directly because we're in charge of the utilities, and then there are assets where the tenant are in charge of that, and getting the data from the tenants is always more challenging. I think that that is changing as occupiers are more aware of why we're asking it, and also as the legislative frameworks uh, improve. I think that there is a role for perhaps the building certification providers to enable that data to be more usable and more accessible and then also in turn occupiers being able to demand kind of simple standards that is understandable by the market and you do see differences in different markets but I think generally data quality is still a challenge. That's interesting and I, I wonder the, the data do you feel that the data in a sense is the push that enables this to become um, 
a benefit. So, for example, you talk about the occupiers' desires to be in sound buildings. That's a premium to to the product, in a sense, rather than the data being an inconvenience factor that, oh gosh, we have to report on this and this. Actually, do you feel it's starting to move the needle towards helping give a sense of a premium product that you would want to report on in order to attract occupiers? Yeah, I think there's a degree to which, as with kind of reflecting on all the other asset classes that you hear, that having that data and information about a broader set of factors than just financial performance is always valuable in terms of understanding what leads to buildings being successful and how can you support your occupiers in um, meeting their business requirements because that's ultimately why people go into real estate is to support their business needs. So I think being able to have data and information about environmental performance and uh, how the indoor environment can benefit their occupiers is always very valuable. I think there's both the premium element and also the kind of you know risk and stranded assets that understanding performance helps you identify risks and understand how you might mitigate against those. Well you clearly have a passion for sustainability and the environment and the space that you work within. Um, I wonder given that and the role that you're in whether you feel the market is adapting quickly enough to have sufficient impact. I mean um, ourselves and a number of other large property owners have recently committed to uh, net zero by 2050 across our for us our global portfolio so I think that there is a growing recognition in the market that to hit our climate change if we're to hit 1.5 degrees all buildings in the world need to be net zero by 2050. I think there's recognition of that, but it's obviously a huge challenge. And so there is still a very long way to go if we are to uh, all kind of meet that um, challenge. Well, Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have lots of people to meet with uh, over the course of the day, so I'll let you get on. But for now, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Right now, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Lewis, Global Head of Sustainability Research for BNB Paribas Asset Management, and also a member of the FSB Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or the TCFD. Mark has been working in this space for many years, and in his panel session today, entitled Policy and Progress, he will be sharing some of the learnings that he has gained over that time. Mark, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Rachel. Pleasure to be here. So I understand that you have a philosophy that you place firmly at the heart of ESG, the concept of the feedback loop starting to take effect. Could you perhaps explain this to our listeners? Certainly. Um, I've been covering energy and climate change and the overlap between the two for the last 15 years. And when I talk about a feedback loop, what I really mean is the interaction between policy on the one hand and technology on the other. Governments 15 years ago in Europe started putting in place subsidies, incentives really, for uh, renewable energy. When you have a subsidy, it attracts capital. 
Um, when capital flows into a new sector or a new technology, you start to see the expansion of the activity and you start to get economies of scale. And when you get economies of scale, the cost comes down. And when the cost comes down, it becomes easier for governments to set tougher targets and the cycle starts to repeat itself. So this is what I mean by the feedback loop between policy and technology. This is exactly what has happened in the European uh, power sector over the last uh, 15 years, where the cost of renewables has come down. In the case of solar, the cost of solar has come down by 85% uh, in the last 15 years. The cost of wind has come down by 70-80%. These technologies would never have been in the position they're in today if governments hadn't put those incentives in place at the beginning. But the point is, although the subsidies might seem expensive at the beginning, by the time you factor in the time you save because of the capital you attract earlier than uh, would have otherwise been the case, it more than pays back uh, for itself. Now, of course, the flip side to that is that the incumbent technologies that are threatened by uh, the new entrant, in this case uh, renewables, uh, they suffer because as the cost of renewables has come down over the last uh, 15 years, it's had this tremendously disruptive impact on the European utility industry. And, you know, utilities are traditionally regarded as the safest industrial sector you can invest in. Um, when you invest in a utility, traditionally you're meant to be investing for capital protection above all else. Uh, you also expect a dividend. Um, you don't necessarily expect big capital appreciation, but you expect capital protection. Over the last 10 years, the European utility sector has lost close to 50% of its market value, market capitalization. In the case of the German utilities, they've lost between 70 and 80% of their market capitalization. So what we're really talking about here is a tr tremendously disruptive force in the form of renewable energy. And I believe we're now at the point where renewable energy is going to start threatening other incumbent energy industries, not least the oil and gas sector. And the reason I say that is that the feedback loop that I was just talking about now has two further very important multipliers. On the one, so in addition to public policy and technology, you have the investor response to that feedback loop. I mean, investors have now had 10, 15 years to observe what's happened in, in the European power sector and want to avoid losing money again on, on another major uh, industrial sector. And at the same time, we've seen growing societal pressure in the last 18 months, two years, and I would say particularly in the last 12 months, uh, around the issue of climate change, uh, the Greta Thunberg effect, uh, the school children's strike for climate change, extinction rebellion. There is a huge upswell, a groundswell really, of uh, public opinion on the need to take bold climate action. And that is only going to further um, exaggerate and exacerbate the impact of the feedback loop because if governments start setting even more ambitious targets for the future, that feedback loop is only going to intensify and accelerate uh, going forward. So that's, that's very interesting because um, my next question was exactly that, that in effect, the, some of those external factors from consumer up, yes. combined with the policy and legislative approach, have sped the process. And would, would you say that that's fair? That I, 
that's impacting on the pace of adoption of, of ESG measures. Oh, now it is a very important extra driver, yes. I would say that this is, in, in effect, this can be seen as a leveraging of the existing um, feedback loop uh, between policy and technology. You know, the investor response and now increasingly the, um, the societal response. If you think about it this way, the inner loop would be uh, policy and technology and then you have investors acting on companies to improve uh, the speed of adoption of new technology and society more broadly having an impact on uh, policy, government policy, uh, to put in place more ambitious targets. So in effect, if you think of this, I don't know what the appropriate metaphor is, but if you think of this as, as, as wheels within wheels, there's an inner wheel of policy technology that's now being uh, driven even faster by the uh, compounded impact from, from uh, society and uh, investors. And so, thinking about the work that you're involved in with the, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, how has that piece of work driven that change and, and, yes. and how has that evolved? So, the TCFD is um, an initiative founded by Mark, Ga Mark Carney in his capacity as, um, not as Governor of the Bank of England, but wearing one of the other hats he used to wear, uh, as chairman of the Financial Stability Board, which is the closest thing we have to a global financial watchdog. It's uh, a body that, that looks at the financial system for the G20, uh, the leading 20 economies in the world. And drawing on the experience of the uh, global financial system's reaction to the financial crisis in 2008-2009, where subsequently they put in place a task force to look at what were the major lessons that could be learned in terms of adapting the financial system, making it more resilient to external shocks in the future, uh, Mark Carney thought, well, it's going to be important. Climate change is one of the megatrends, perhaps the defining megatrend of our age, and that climate change brings with it very significant implications for the financial system and for the stability of the financial system. And therefore, that it was appropriate to put in place a task force that would look, think through very methodically what is what are the drivers of change in the financial system from, from climate change? Where are the risks? In what way does climate change manifest itself as a financial risk, as a systemic financial risk? That was really the task that we were set by Mark Carney under the chairmanship of uh, Mayor Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City. And there are 30 of us who are members of the TCFD. We published our first report in... Uh, July 2017 and we're now in the implementation phase of that uh, process and I have to say you know I think it's fair to say we've all been pleasantly surprised at the momentum that the TCFD initiative is now uh, gaining the traction it's gaining amongst uh, both companies and governments. Important to remember that this was seen as a voluntary initiative it was a way for in Mark Carney's own words for industry practitioners people from all walks of financial and industrial life to come up with decision-critical recommendations around the reporting and disclosure of climate change risks with a financial dimension. And the idea being that if the people best placed to make these recommendations put them down on paper, the market can then have a more informed conversation over time. And, and in Mark Carney's words, you end up developing 
a market in the transition towards a two-degree world. That's really what this is all about. And that's exactly what is now transpiring. Both investors and companies and also now governments are responding to the recommendations. Companies in the form of giving more disclosure, investors in the sense that they are requiring more disclosure from the companies they cover. And government saying, well, actually, the systemic financial risk here could be extremely important. Perhaps we ought to think about making the voluntary recommendations that the TCFD put forward mandatory. And so the UK government, the first in the world, has said that in, from 2022 it will be mandatory for UK companies to uh, report climate change risk under the um, aegis of the TCFD recommendations. So I think what the TCFD is doing, it's all about timing, right? It's the right moment to accelerate the debate in the market around this, give the market more information and let the market try and figure out what the most important information it needs is. Companies, as Mark Carney has said many times, companies that respond to this in the best way, that really look more rigorously than other companies at where they are exposed in terms of their climate change risks and report on that to their shareholders and other stakeholders will by necessity probably make more informed choices about their future strategy than companies that do not take this process as seriously and therefore over time the market will be able to discriminate more clearly between companies that are responding appropriately to the threat of climate change and those that are not and therefore you will end up ultimately and this was the whole purpose uh, behind Mark Carney's original idea with a more efficient allocation of capital within the global financial system i.e. Uh, an allocation of capital that takes into account the, the risk of uh, systemic financial uh, risk uh, from climate change. Well, it sounds to me like you're bringing us good news at a time when people are desperate for good news <laughs> well, you and, know what? and that's, real change, that's, real progress that's actually happening, and, and that's super to hear. Well, I, I think, actually, Rachel, you make a very good point there because, you know, having covered this area for 15 years, there's been plenty of... Uh, times where one has felt uh, pessimistic I'm actually in the curious position where at least on this topic of climate change I get more optimistic the longer I'm in it and the reason I say that the main reason I say that is that the economics of renewables now have gone mainstream so we know that renewables can compete more than compete with traditional sources of uh, energy provision. In terms of power generation, renewables now are very clearly the cheapest source of, uh, n of new uh, electricity generation throughout the world. Solar, in particular, has further to go in terms of reducing its costs. Absolutely incredible what has happened there. If you go back 15 years, no one would have believed we would be where we are today in terms of the cost reductions that we've seen. So I think that's an unmitigated, unqualified success story. The big challenge over the next decade is to develop storage, energy storage technologies that can build on the success of renewables and store the solar power and the wind power that is generated when it's not needed and bring it back to people when they do want to consume it. That's really the big challenge. I think of it this way. Uh, climate change is driven by uh, largely by anthropogenic uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The energy industry accounts for 70% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. So we know we can decarbonize the energy industry. The question is, can we match people's need for energy 
with the availability of energy and only storage will really enable us to bridge that final uh, or to, to put that final piece of the jigsaw in place. So if we can solve the energy storage problem, I believe ultimately we, we can solve the climate change problem. And that's why I think it's no exaggeration to say that uh, energy story is the biggest energy storage is probably the biggest story in the world over the next uh, two decades. Fantastic. Well, it's left me feeling very positive about uh, where we are today. <laughs> and I think the number of people we see attending the event today shows that the interest in investing in that feedback loop that you described, yes. whether that's through technology or other investment propositions, shows that there's a real appetite, isn't there? Absolutely. So. Yeah, I've never, I mean, I have to say, having been around in this space for a long time, we went through a first wave of enthusiasm, 2007, 2008, carbon, the last time carbon prices were at the current levels we're seeing. And then it kind of all fizzled out with the financial crisis, which basically distracted global policymakers for at least the following three or four or five years. It's taken a long time for climate change to come back to the level of policy prominence that it has now. But the great news is that during this second wave of uh, policy and technology innovation around climate change, the fundamental economics of renewables are so much better than they were 10 years ago. That just makes it so much easier to sell the story of um, the energy transition and the inevitability, the irresistibility of the energy transition. Well, Mark, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's such an interesting topic to discuss, and I know you have a really busy day ahead, so we'll leave it there for now. But thank you once more for joining us My on pleasure, today's Rachel. podcast. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks. So that wraps up the first of two episodes we're recording here at the CFA UK's ESG Investing Conference. Thank you to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the team at CFA UK for inviting us back to interview their speakers. Don't forget, if you want to find out more information about CFA UK or contact them directly, simply check out their website at cfauk.org. In our second episode of this podcast, to follow soon, we'll be hearing from Professor Elroy Dimson, who is Chairman for the Centre for Endowment for Asset Management at the Cambridge Judge Business School, part of the University of Cambridge, Faith Ward, Chief Responsible Investment Officer at Brunel Pension Partnership, Fadi Sahir, Head of Index Research and Development, Legal and General Investment Management, and Will Goodhart, Chief Executive Officer, CFA UK. So make sure you tune into your podcast feed to get the full ESG picture. Meantime, we hope you've been inspired by this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of ESG investing. To contribute to the discussion, visit us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram. All of our accounts are linked on the top of our website at csuitepodcast.com. You'll also find all of our previous shows and supporting notes there too plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. Finally, if you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a positive rating and review. And to get in touch with the show, simply use the contact form on our website. For now, though, all that remains is for me to say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.